You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This week's episode of Big Picture Science is not the one we planned to do. But after the killing of George Floyd by a Minneapolis police officer, we immediately ditched our planned episode about, what else, coronavirus, and started from scratch. However, we wondered what a science program could offer during this distressing time. After all, the outrage in the streets centers around police violence against black people and centuries of systematic racism in the U.S. In other words, societal and economic issues. But those issues are deeply intertwined with the coronavirus pandemic and help explain why it is hitting some races harder than others. The pattern of illness reflects the pattern of inequity in this country. Blacks, Latinos, and Native Americans are bearing the brunt of COVID illness and death. Because this health disparity plays out privately in homes and hospitals, it is not a flashpoint for direct protest. But it, too, is a kind of violence, a brutal inequality with a stamp of racism. So it turns out we are doing a show about coronavirus after all. In this episode, the reasons for the pronounced racial and ethnic health disparities in those affected by the pandemic, why there are huge gaps in data that would tell us who is most at risk, and how the Cheyenne River Sioux tribe defied a governor's order in order to protect members of their reservation. It's Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute. I'm Molly Bentley. I'm Seth Shostak. This episode, Race and COVID. In the midst of the protests about police violence and systemic racism in the United States, another tragedy born of inequity demands our attention. The stark racial disparities in coronavirus infections and deaths. A virus doesn't discriminate when looking for a host. It's an equal opportunity pathogen. But access to health care, to housing, to education, to economic opportunity is not distributed equally in this country. This has left some communities more vulnerable to the pandemic. According to data collected by COVID Racial Tracker, a joint project of the Anti-Racist Research and Policy Center and the COVID Tracking Project, nationally African-American deaths are per capita nearly two times greater than that of the general population. In some states, the rate is three or four times greater. As an example, in Wisconsin, where only 6% of the state's population is black, blacks make up 27% of the deaths from COVID. The data, and the lack of complete data is an issue we'll get to, also show that Hispanics and Latinos make up a greater share of confirmed cases of COVID than their proportion of the population in the majority of states. In some cases, more than four times greater. We'll provide a link to the COVID racial tracker on our website. But now we'll explore the reasons for these sharp racial health disparities, many of which existed long before the pandemic. Marcella Nunez-Smith is director of the Equity Research and Innovation Center at the Yale School of Medicine. And she says that those working in her field sadly expected these numbers. The reality is with the numbers, we might even be seeing uh, underestimation of just how stark those disparities are. You know, the headlines say things like seven out of 10 patients 
killed by COVID in Louisiana are African-American or that black Chicagoans are dying at nearly six times the rate of white residents. I mean, that, you know, that isn't a statistical variation. This is a very alarming set of numbers. Oh, highly alarming. And even with some colleagues, we were able to do some analyses of, of national data that were available in, in April. And we found that these trends were true across the country, not just Louisiana, not just Chicago, but to your point, that consistently for, for Black uh, patients with COVID-19, that risk was 3.57 times that of, of whites. And uh, for anybody who was Latinx, it was also incredibly high, almost a, a risk increase of, of two. And so that has really been a call, I think, to action for many people who weren't aware um, of the pre-existing health disparities and the pre-existing realities um, in the social lives of people of color in our country that really give rise to these disparate outcomes. So this disparity is not uh, limited to, you know, whether they're living in cities or whether they're in the suburbs. It's just all across the racial boundaries in this case. Yes, absolutely. And I think it's important for everyone to understand that, you know, race as we think about it is really a social construct. You know, what we're seeing now is not the result of some difference in biology across these groups. Um, it's a difference in opportunity and access to resources that has been multi-generational, frankly. Maybe you can give me an overview of the kind of things that are contributing to this, uh, this asymmetry. So, you know, if we even think now of who we have deemed essential workers, uh, particularly in these early stages of the pandemic, you know, black and brown individuals who work in some of these low wage yet essential jobs where there is great risk for exposure and infection. And then for many people of color who live in households where there are other relatives and quite frankly, there might be multi-generational families and people in the home who are at high risk. And that is on top of the realities of misinformation campaigns that are out there and sometimes targeted, the fact that institutions haven't been really great about customizing messages that are culturally responsive and appropriate and accessible for everyone. You know, if social distancing is a privilege for you, then being told to socially distance and work from home when you are a grocery store clerk, you know, that message falls flat. You've just mentioned the fact that there's simply the matter of exposure if you're working in a food processing plant or something like that, and you're sitting next to somebody else who's doing similar work, and you're there for eight hours a day, and they're sick, your chances of getting sick are obviously higher. I mean, it's, the dosage counts for a lot when it comes to spreading the pandemic. But uh, what about some of these uh, other pre-existing situations? Yes, we have both pre-existing, you know, medical and social uh, situations. You know, access to care, ongoing and consistent care is essential. I'm a primary care physician, um, so I certainly hold up how important it is for everybody to have a primary care provider that they see regularly and who can screen them for important chronic conditions that can be prevented and treated. And for many, many people in our country who are poor, many people of color, they don't have a regular primary care provider and often use the emergency room um, when needed for care. And so you end up in a situation where people have a higher burden, quite frankly, of things like underlying heart disease, underlying lung disease, obesity, and those put you at great, great risk for severe complications of COVID-19. Well, you know, if I don't feel well or, you know, there's something that's persistently affecting my health, even if it's fairly minor, I have to say, you know, I call up my doctor and I schedule an appointment, but not everybody can do that. That's right. In addition to all the logistics of getting to doctors, keeping appointments, especially if you have work schedules that shift. Um, so the, the question about access is a key one, and it's been complicated for us as a country to sort out. Yeah. You know, one of the things I would add, Seth, that we've seen is, you know, the message went out, which I think was a, an important one, that our health systems were at risk for getting overwhelmed with treating COVID-19 and people should, should stay away. Um, but if you think about folks who only use the emergency department being told to, to stay away, we're very worried about not just kind of deaths from COVID-19, but the fact that people just haven't been using the emergency departments for things like heart attacks and strokes at the same rates we would expect. 
So there is yet more, I think, in terms of the negative consequence of all of these recent events that we'll see as far as health outcomes. You, you mentioned uh, such things as, you know, pre-existing conditions that haven't necessarily been treated, diabetes, heart disease, lung disease, high blood pressure. Uh, these conditions, I, I don't know that they're any different in terms of, you know, the rate at which they occur among black and Hispanic communities. But uh, you did mention uh, obesity, and that could be a social situation, could it not? I mean, uh, uh, many people in these communities will live in a food desert kind of thing, so they're, you know, they're eating food that's going to make them overweight because it's inexpensive. Is that a significant factor? Seth, I think it is, you know, and I can even just think of my own patients that, you know, you mentioned a, a food food desert. I mean, we all still talk about food swamps. So when the only food that you can access is just really high calorie dense food that has little nutritional value, that's a problem. I mean, just that's an obvious problem. And I know many patients for whom, you know, getting to a store that carries even something like skim milk requires multiple buses and a half day event. And so you're much more likely to end up eating what's available in the local corner store. And if you compound that with limited opportunities for physical activity, um, because you don't feel safe or there aren't sidewalks in your neighborhood. Uh, all of those ingredients that will contribute to something like obesity, and we do see higher rates in black and brown communities. So, so this is really quite a demonstration of how very broad social differences, social disparities lead to medical disparities, which lead to victim outcomes in a pandemic. Absolutely. I mean, I think that is a key message for everyone to understand that these pre-existing social disparities, so things, you know, as basic as access to food and access to stable and safe housing, you know, access to healthcare, that these are the same determinants that then factor into what we're seeing with the pandemic and the stark disparities and outcomes there. And there have been, um, sadly, too many studies that have confirmed that being given a patient's race, even in a hypothetical scenario, will alter what providers think should happen in terms of treatment, despite kind of all of the clinical symptoms being the same. So we have to be working on all the fronts, thinking about some of those big structural issues, also thinking at that interpersonal level to make sure bias doesn't play a role. When it comes to addressing the pandemic, I mean, we're talking about things like testing, uh, you know, tracing. Those are things that everybody needs, no matter what community you come from, right? But it, it sounds like the chances that you're going to get really sick or die are grounded in situations that are so broadly based, you know, so extensive. It, it sounds a little discouraging. I mean, it, it, there's no quick fix. There isn't a Quick fix. I mean, let's talk about testing for a second. Um, in many communities, drive-through testing became available first. But what if you don't have a car? Um, what if you can't sort of get to the test? And this was a big problem. And so trying to think about how to get testing where it should be has been a goal of public health departments everywhere. Um, but, you know, that still isn't sufficient. People have to understand the value of getting tested. I know many people who are nervous about getting tested if it'll mean that they'll have to miss work for two weeks with, without any economic support or relief available for them. And counter to that, we have people who have tried to get tested without success. And uh, even here in, in New Haven, um, we've had patients who have sadly died at home uh, after failed attempts at getting tested. So even something that seems as straightforward as testing ends up being a really complex discussion in light of the racial ethnic disparities. To what extent are these disparities well-documented? I mean, are we getting the requisite data to be able to say, look, you know, these are the disparities in cases and deaths, whatever, in the health situation in these communities. Is that data complete enough? We need to have good data, Seth on you know, who is infected and affected uh, by COVID-19. Um, if we can't see it, then we can't intervene and fix it. And sadly, um, what we know is that not every state was reporting uh, data by race ethnicity at the beginning of the pandemic. And even those that were, 
um, large proportions of the data were missing important variables such as race and ethnicity. This is a broad societal problem, Marcella. We've been seeing for, you know, like 10 days now, protests in the streets about the treatment of a black man by the police in Minnesota. These protests are, you know, the, these are very durable protests. This is just not one night of protests or anything like that. People are exercised about this. Do you think that this is going to make any difference? Do you think this will have long-term impact on the kind of problems we're facing in the medical realm? Seth, I really hope we're witnessing a watershed moment here, both in terms of the intensity, but also, frankly, the diversity of these coalitions across the country. Um, it does begin to feel like something different than we've seen before. You know, I'm often asked about the public health ramifications of people protesting and, and what those concerns are. Um, and I just caution us all to not create this, this binary. I think if you're you know, protesting, and if you've lived feeling unsafe and under duress for so long, then it's not a choice between protection from COVID-19 um, and exercising your right to feel safe. The protesters are protesting against police brutality and excessive force, but they're protesting for an opportunity for good health and long life, just like everyone else. And that's the same mission with COVID-19 and with everything we're seeing this week. Marcella Nunes-Smith, thanks so very much for speaking with us. It's been my pleasure. Thanks, Seth. Marcella Nunes-Smith is Associate Professor of Medicine and of Epidemiology at the Yale School of Medicine and the director of its Equity Research and Innovation Center. The way to understand the coronavirus pandemic is to follow the science, and to do that, you need data. But there are still major gaps in the data about race and ethnicity when it comes to COVID. We'll find out what's being done about that. Knowing where those infections are coming from and how to engage with the community that has been exposed to the infection is really quite critical. Plus, why we are driven to categorize by skin color. You're listening to Big Picture Science. This episode is called Race and COVID. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We've heard from Dr. Nunez-Smith about the racial disparities of those affected by COVID-19. But as she mentioned, there's another problem, a gap in reporting from health officials. Although the pandemic has been raging for months, critical data about the race and ethnicity of those infected is incomplete or is missing altogether. And without good data, a full picture of public health during this pandemic is unclear. Working to help close those gaps is Dr. Utibe Essien an assistant professor of medicine at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine. The four levels of data that we need in this pandemic start with testing. Um, we need to know who is being tested, where they are, where they live, and who those individuals actually are. We need to know about infection rates, so who is being infected with COVID-19. We need to know about hospitalizations, who's actually being infected so badly that they're showing up in the emergency department and ultimately getting admitted to the hospital. And lastly, we need to know who is dying from this disease. And when I say who, I do mean that we need race and ethnicity information. We need to have language information. And we need to have that information um, adjusted for by age. Well, when health providers um, collect data, it seems like 
asking about race and ethnicity is a very basic question. It's right up there with name and how old are you? Yeah, so that is what what one would think, and that is what the federal government here has made in terms of law, where the Joint Commission back in the early 2000s and the Affordable Care Act both are man, have mandated already that race, ethnicity, and language data be collected in the hospital setting. And so these laws have already come to place and already put in place, and yet, um, as we've seen in this pandemic, there still has been so much variation in, in the reporting of such data I think one of the big challenges early in the pandemic was that folks, they wanted to ensure the privacy of their patients. And so ethnicity, race is something that is a unique identifier. But here we are, unfortunately, 100,000 deaths in and millions of cases in. And so that, that should no longer be an issue at a national level. So to be clear, were people not asked to provide their race or ethnicity or language? Or were they asked and they chose to decline responding? Yeah, that's a great question. I I don't suspect that folks would have declined. I think the reporting of those data were limited by public health officials and health departments because of how few cases were showing up. That at least anecdotally is what I've heard was being done. But I don't believe that the patients themselves were necessarily declining, though that certainly could be the case. Some of the categories are quite general. In some cases, black, white, or other is the absence of categories worse than no reporting at all? Yeah, so having some reporting is incredibly helpful, though we, as um, you probably discussed with Marcella, our studies showed that even of the 28 states that were reporting at the time of our data collection, there were still huge ranges where as many as 40% of states had that data as listed as missing. Um, so yes, we want some data, some is better than none, but having a full group of other that includes Asian Americans who we know in certain cities are more infected, includes Native Americans who we know across the Southwest are more likely to be infected than their white counterparts, or includes Latinx or Hispanic populations, which from New York City, where I grew up, to Boston, where I trained, we know are particularly being infected. Um, That just almost in a way is not very useful at this time. Over the past few months, you have been researching the gap in race and ethnicity reporting of COVID-19 cases across the country. What first tipped you off that the numbers weren't representative of what was happening in communities? Yeah, that's an important question. So early in the pandemic, the those who were being tested were those who had recently traveled, were the older populations that we saw in Washington who were residing in nursing homes and were potentially exposed to outbreaks of COVID-19. But very quickly, as we started to see the data come out of China, for example, about who was at risk of high of being severely infected by this disease, we saw that chronic risk factors like hypertension, diabetes, obesity were really some of the big drivers of this disease. And at that point is when I think many of us who are health disparities researchers or work in the field were concerned about Black, Hispanic, and um, other minority groups being at risk. We know that for decades, for centuries really, these chronic diseases have been more common in racial and ethnic minorities. And so the expectation was that that um, we were going to unfortunately see a rise of cases in those groups. Why do you need the race and ethnicity of your patients? How does that help you and other doctors and scientists treat them and actually fight this pandemic? Yeah, so a hugely important question and something that many of us, whether we're medical educators or medical researchers, are thinking about, you know, during medical school, we take uh, board exams and we are told that if a young black woman presents with X symptoms, she probably has sickle cell disease. If a young Asian woman presents with this, she probably has this other condition. And that is kind of perpetuated all across um, the medical education process. In this moment, we are not trying to racialize uh, a pandemic or racialize a disease, but we are unfortunately clear based on the uh, last three months of data that we've seen, and like I mentioned, even before these data came out, that there are certain groups that are disproportionately affected 
And so knowing the race of our patients is important to not just have the data out there and show the world that there's some unfortunate and disproportionate um, toll of this pandemic, but it really is to be able to guide and inform where resources go. Where are the testing um, resources going to go? Where are the testing facilities going to be placed? I love the question around where the tests are. There is this news report that came out last week that showed in Texas, for example, um, majority white counties were more likely to have access to testing sites than majority minority counties. And so I think that's probably what's going on around the country. And again, if individuals don't have access to testing sites, we won't have access to their data. And so what does that mean for the data that we're even looking at? Are we potentially underreporting the disparities that, that are being reported? I'm intrigued by this statement that data are the only way that we can see the virus quote from someone who loves data. (laughs) It is about the data. What does that mean? We need the data to see the virus. Yeah, that's that is pretty deep, like you like you said. And I think so. We hear the anecdotal stories, you know, reporters um, are sharing these stories of the young single mother who can't afford to place her child in homeschool, but also can't afford to not work. And so needs to um, continue to work, comes home and lives living in a multi-generational home and potentially exposing her mother, exposing her children, exposing her, her co-workers. Maybe she's a home health aid and exposing her patient. And so we hear the stories that really bring this infection to to the hearts and minds, so to speak. But without the data, that may just be that one story. Someone can easily say, well, that's that one person in that one city in that one community. That's not what's going on in my backyard. But our study has shown and many others have shown that this is a national problem, that whether you're in Chicago, Milwaukee, New Orleans, or New York City, Black individuals are dying at a higher rate of COVID-19 than other groups. And that's not just a one-person story. That's really a national issue. Well, finally, the word data, is it okay to to use it as a singular, as a plural? I grew up with a a scientist as a father, and he said it always has to be data are. Have we gotten to a point where we can say the data is, or are you a data are kind of guy? I'm a data R, I'm a these data, I'm a research versus research, so that's my line, I'm sticking with it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Utibe Essien, thank you so much for speaking with us. Same here, thanks so much for having me, Molly. Utibe Essien is Assistant Professor of Medicine at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine. Later, we'll look at why the hotspots of this pandemic in the U.S. are on Native American lands. But first, a step back. As protests swept American cities like brush fire, we were considering what our science show can offer at this distressing time, and we kept returning to the question about what science would say about why we make rigid divisions based on skin color. After all, there is no genetic basis for race, and as one scientist put it, it's a made-up category. Yet the pain, brutality, and injustice of racism is very real. Humans have a distressingly aggressive us-versus-them mentality, but it may not be as ingrained as we think. We'll get perspectives from two scientists who have previously appeared on this show to discuss related issues. We talked to anthropologist Nina Jablonski recently about how the coronavirus pandemic is depriving us of reassuring physical contact and hugs. But Dr. Jablonski's primary area of research is about skin and race. We ask what the science of skin color has to offer at this time. The science of skin color can certainly inform our discussions of race today because we know much more about how skin color developed in human evolutionary history than we ever did. And one of the important things that we can recognize is that skin color is a product of understandable evolutionary mechanisms. Skin color is primarily an adaptation to intensities of ultraviolet radiation in sunlight. If you live under conditions of intense sunlight, you will tend to have darker skin color with a lot of protective melanin pigment. People living under less 
intense and more seasonal sunlight will have much less melanin pigment, and in some cases, very little melanin pigment. So we really can call skin color an evolutionary adaptation. How does that help us understand uh, what is happening now? We have street protests against police brutality. There are uprisings around the world recognizing the systemic racial problems that we have. Understanding the the reasons why some people have darker skin doesn't seem like it's going to address what's happening right now. Ah, but if we go back in history and see how skin color was first treated in Western science, this gives us a clue. Because skin color was associated with place of residence and with a host of other physical and behavioral and cultural traits. Way back in the 1700s and 1800s, people thought that skin color signified not only where you were from, but what you were able to do, what your intelligence was like, what your moral fiber was like, what your capacity for civilization was like. And our stereotypes that have persisted to this day of the nature of races are rooted in these very old explanations or definitions of races. You write that skin color is one of the most fundamental ways in which people vary in their appearance, and it's one of the first things we notice about each other. Why do we notice skin color and not say, I don't know, head size or hair color or footwear? Color is a tremendous signifier to all primates. We are very color-oriented, so we can't stop noticing color. But the assessment and judgment that we make about color is very much conditioned by our personal experience, by our socialization and acculturation. But because these have been introduced into our consciousnesses when we have been very young, these biases in our perception, what we now refer to as implicit biases, developed or began to develop in many cases when we were small children. And they didn't necessarily develop because we were told that so-and-so who is a particular color is good or bad, but simply because kids are good at really noticing what's going on and how their parents and caregivers react to others, or even how they choose to do things or where they go and what they do. Kids pick up on this and they pick up on sort of who is preferred and who is not preferred. And these become powerful implicit biases that go on to condition behavior much later. Pennsylvania State University anthropologist Nina Jablonski. She's the author of Living Color, the Biology and Social Meaning of Skin Color. Well, the biological drivers behind why we find ourselves where we are now are explored in a book whose title captures the moment, Behave, the Biology of Humans at Our Best and Worst, by Stanford University neuroscientist Robert Sapolsky. Robert, you write about the phenomenon of racism in our brains, and we're witnessing the dramatic and painful consequences of such things in the protests against police brutality and so forth. As someone who knows what's going on at a deep level, what's your reaction to this unrest? Well, separate of the emotional level of deciding this is depressing as hell, um, scientifically, it's mostly depressing as hell. There's, there's a few glimmers of good news in there. What is mostly depressing about it is we, we humans, we primates, we social mammals have an incredibly strong propensity towards making us, them divisions in our head and big surprise, liking the us's a lot more than the them's. You take somebody, you stick them in a brain scanner and you're flashing up pictures of faces rapidly. And if it's a face of someone who counts as an other, in terms of race, in terms of gender, in terms of age, in terms of perceived social status, your brain is processing the us-themness in a fraction of a second. Your brain is processing 
race in about 60 to 70 thousandths of a second. And in most people, what this processing involves is automatic activation of the amygdala, a part of the brain that's all about fear and anxiety and aggression. You mentioned that it's the amygdala that gets fired up when we're making these uh, recognitions of difference. Uh, what is the amygdala? What does it do here in this case? And why do I care what part of the brain it is? Um, the amygdala is talking to all sorts of your parts of your body having to do with arousal and fear and stress and all of that. But the most interesting thing about it is the part of the brain that is most central to understanding us being afraid is also most central to understanding us being aggressive and violent and damaging. You cannot understand violence outside the context of being fearful. And in a world in which no amygdaloid neuron need be afraid, we'd, we'd all be napping between lions and lambs pretty regularly. Okay, so we have, uh, as you say, a remarkable ability to very quickly make a dividing line between us and them, but surely there was some survival value in being able to do that. Otherwise, we probably wouldn't be so good at it. Oh, I think it's sort of basic primate xenophobia. And what becomes interesting by the time we get to humans is it's not something that makes sense in a biological sense. It's somebody who we have been taught is in a category of an other. Some of those us-them categorizations have a lower threshold for us to have to be taught them, but insofar as we are humans, we can us-them in domains that other primates couldn't even dream of. I think what you wind up getting, especially in the context of, say, racism, is having to think about how evolutionarily insignificant race has been. I know you had Nina Jablonski on, and I assume she emphasized race is a pretty recent thing for humans. It's not a clean biological category. There's lots of reasons for questioning if there's any validity to it. To what extent are we plastic? To what extent can we redefine the thems? What I think is the best thing about us in terms of us humans with our us-them categories is we've got multiple categories in our head at the same time. And somebody who is flagrantly a them in a fraction of a second in our mind right now, all sorts of subtle and unsubtle stuff can cause you to recategorize them in an instant so they now count as an us in a different domain. So in other words, there's room for optimism here we can, in fact, uh, bend the arc of, of future history to maybe kinder, gentler society. Well, it sure as hell is hard to look at the state of our world in the last week, to look at the state of the pain that us of them dichotomizing is still inflicting on the have-nots who wind up being the thems, and not to be pretty damn discouraged, but somewhere lurking in there, our our human brains have a lot of plasticity. I think basically, unless you're the, the Dalai Lama, your brain is going to be doing this sort of dividing because it's some very ancient biology in there. Maybe the plan is, or the goal is to make the thems somebody we can all agree upon as a them. Maybe it's us against the Slytherins or us against the mean people who suck and things of that sort, if we're stuck with us, them dichotomies, like fight not making them about the things that we've been appallingly damaging about over the millennia. Robert Sapolsky, thanks so very much for speaking with us. Sure. Thanks for having me on. Robert Sapolsky is professor of neuroscience at Stanford University, and he is the author of Behave, the Biology of Humans at Our Best and worst. Next, how one Native American community took it upon itself to protect its citizens from coronavirus when the state didn't step in to help. You're listening to Big Picture Science. This episode is called Race and COVID.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Highway 212 begins in eastern Minnesota. Ease onto it there and you can drive all the way to Yellowstone National Park at the Montana-Wyoming border. But you can't drive it without stopping, even if you load up on snacks and water, because in South Dakota, you'll need to stop, briefly, at a couple of checkpoints. They're manned by tribal members of the Cheyenne River Sioux Reservation, residents who are trying to mitigate coronavirus infections. The governor of South Dakota has asked the tribe to take the checkpoints down. Consequently, Highway 212 has become a flashpoint in the discussion of racial and ethnic disparities during this pandemic, both in the number of COVID cases and the dearth of resources provided to fight them. According to a study by the American Indian Study Center at UCLA, American Indian communities have some of the highest rates of coronavirus in the United States, but those data may be incomplete as well. Native Americans and other indigenous people are often misidentified or undercounted in official records. But here's what's emerging. The top COVID hotspots in the country are all on Native American land, particularly among the Navajo in Arizona. The Lakota, living on the Cheyenne River Sioux Reservation, acted promptly in the early days of the pandemic to protect their community by social distancing and setting up checkpoints. Harold Frazier, chairman of the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe, said it was their only choice. Self-preservation in the absence of federal help is a long-standing response of indigenous communities, many of which are now especially vulnerable to the pandemic. You know, you can look back to our uh, way of life that was taken away from us by the government. Uh, when I talk about a way of life, it was our uh, diet, our uh, ability to move about. You know, when, when we moved with uh, Seasons, you know, we where we went, lived, and, you know, we were always in good good health, good shape. Uh, we were horse people, where we always rode horses, and, you know, back in the, when the reservation days were first established, they took away our, our, not only our guns, but also took away our horses and animals and things like that. So, it just started from there, you know, we were uh, unable to eat the types of food that we were uh, were given our creator and you know because of poor diet things like that we've just gotten to uh not very good health today diabetes i mean all these diseases like that are hundreds of times higher than the national average that's why it makes us be very vulnerable to uh, this virus you, you've been stripped of the resources that you need and in a combination with these other diseases that make people quite vulnerable to coronavirus on the reservations. Oh, yeah, definitely. And, and you know, and also to our, our living conditions, you know, you know, in many of our homes, there's two to three families that live there. We've always, uh, our culture is family, you know, it's just harder. So um, when it does get into Indian country, it's going to be a lot harder to control and, and to stop. If we just look at our relatives to the south, uh, uh, Navajo, and you know, it's unfortunate, but we see uh, Rosebud and Ogallala starting to see numbers climb. Also, our, our relatives to the east, the Sisseton tribe. So uh, it is a concern of ours, and, and that's why we're going to try to do everything we can to prevent it from coming in. And the point of the, the living conditions being so crowded means that if the virus gets in, it can really spread like wildfire. Oh, most definitely. And where we're located, the nearest uh, facility is three-hour drive away. The, the nearest health facility? Yeah. If, if any of our members are have to go into a critical care stage, it's it's you know it's a three-hour drive away, and and even at that, um, it's starting to concern us because uh, that's in Rapid City, South Dakota, and and we start seeing the numbers are starting to increase over there, and and we've reached out to the state. You know, I, I we asked them for assistance in um, what they call PPEs. We never had a response back. We reached out. 
under uh, the laws, uh, I understand that the Corps of Engineers could build field hospitals, but the process is the state has to make the request to FEMA, and then FEMA makes the request to the Corps, then they can build these field hospitals. So we put in a request that we wanted uh, a 50-bed field hospital. I followed up with a letter, but as of today, we still didn't get it. If you could get what you wanted from the federal government, what would it be? If you could have your wish list granted, what would it be? To, to be fully staffed and equipped for every disease that affects our people. You know, we don't even have uh, childbirth in here. The nearest facility for that is, is an hour and a half drive away and 90 miles to Pierce, South Dakota. And, and it goes back, like I said, historically, you know, you can't just say one day they decided not to help us. They never have. Well, Chairman Frazier, uh, let's talk then about the response of the Cheyenne River Sioux to this pandemic. Now, as you said, because you knew you weren't going to get what you needed and have not received what you've needed from the government, your tribe has implemented your own measures to protect yourself from this virus. And one of those is the establishment of checkpoints that you put on the Highway 212, which I believe runs west and east, right straight through your reservation. What is the role of the checkpoints and why did you establish them? Well, right now, at that time and even now, the best tool we have is, is prevention. And the best way to prevent it is to keep it out of here. And we know that this virus does not travel. You know, it's the people infected with the virus travel. So you want to be able to trace it, isolate it, and contain it. So what happens when a, a truck or a car arrives at a checkpoint on Highway 212? Depends. If, if you're a commercial traveler, um, you know, you are allowed to uh, go through, but we still get your name, your, your information, and uh, where you're going, your destination. And majority of them are just traveling through, so they're allowed to travel through. If you're a motorist that uh, is traveling through, which we deem non-essential, if you're just coming to a reservation, look around, we're going to turn you back, especially if you come from uh, out of state where there's a potential hotspot. One of the things that's lost in this story, because there has been a lot of attention around these checkpoints, are the ways in which the Cheyenne River Sioux has responded to the pandemic that's been comprehensive. In other words, you're not just taking information at the checkpoints, you've also been doing contact tracing. Well, there's a series of questions that are asked. There's some health questions, you know, and it's all related to coronavirus. And, you know, number one, are you coming from there? Do you have a cough? Do you have, you know... Uh, things like that, and, and it's all documented. And so that's another purpose of our checkpoints, that if uh, people do travel and they come home, you know, where'd they go, where'd they get it? And so far we've been successful. We, we've had a, probably about three weeks ago, we did have a positive case uh, because of the checkpoints and our command center working hand in hand with our medical people. We knew where it was coming. We even knew it was coming before it got here that this individual had the potential, was in a hot spot. By the next morning, we knew the primary, secondary contacts were able to do it. We have one now that uh, same situation. We are fourth day of it. And so far fortunate that uh, any of the primary and secondary contacts, there has no uh, positive cases from that. So I'm keeping my fingers crossed and hoping and praying every day that, you know, that this is the only one and it doesn't spread from there. So, so to be clear, you're not testing, you're not actually testing for the virus, uh, but you're asking a few questions and it's an inconvenience of maybe a minute or two. Yes. You said this and it went by a little quickly, but I think it's important to emphasize that since the pandemic began, you've had one, maybe two positive cases. One person has fully recovered. The other one, you're hoping for a full recovery on your reservation, while South Dakota has had more than 5,000 cases of COVID. So just to put that in perspective, what you're doing seems to be working. And yet the governor of South Dakota, Christy Noam, has asked you to remove these checkpoints. Why does she want them removed? Well, I guess I can't read her mind, but I can speculate, you know, and, you know, she loves to think that she owns us. She loves to think that she controls us. And when she's finding out that she can, I think it's kind of uh, hard for her to chew on because, uh, you know, we're, uh, we're probably more sovereign than the state of South Dakota because we were here first. Um, you know, interesting thing about it is 
since the beginning, we've always, you know, the tribal leadership, we've always watched all of the briefings and things like that that she has done. And one thing that stuck out to us was that uh, there was no mention of us tribes. No mention. And, and it wasn't until we put up the checkpoints and all of a sudden we become, you know, on the radar. You know, and you said something important, which is you can't put words in, in her mouth, and you're you're absolutely right. And, and in fact, I do have her reasoning, and her reasoning why she wants the checkpoints removed is that they're on a state-controlled highway, and they're interfering with regular traffic flow. Does her argument have merit? Nope. <laughs> I mean, okay. You know, it, it doesn't matter, because uh, we're still going to do this, and there's nothing illegal about what we're doing through whether it's state or federal because it's sovereign land oh yeah i mean it's just life you know and you know it doesn't matter what what they say or what they try to do we're still here we were here first and when the sun goes down we're still gonna be here chairman harold frazier thank you so much for speaking to us you betcha thank you harold frazier is chairman of the cheyenne river sioux tribe in south dakota so the big picture here, we see a very disturbing trend in which communities of color have worse outcomes, significantly worse outcomes when it comes to the pandemic. And if you get behind that fact and say, well, why is that? Then we see that, well, it's not just one thing. It's a whole, you know, it's a whole slew of things. One of the big picture takeaways for me is that the problems are so broad and they're centuries old, that there isn't one solution. And we all need to work on this. And really, the big picture takeaway is we have to be better. With regard to the pandemic, the effects of, you know, longstanding systemic racism are so pernicious. I think that that, in fact, may give us the stimulus to finally address this in such a way that we can solve the problem for the future. If you're in the streets during this pandemic, we've got some science-backed tips that can help reduce your risk of coronavirus infection. Wear a mask at all times, avoid handshakes, hand hugs, use hand sanitizer, bring your own water bottle, avoid the shared microphones, and well, avoid tear gas to protect your lungs. Also, it may be futile, but try to maintain social distancing. We couldn't do the show without senior producer Gary Niederhoff and producer Sarah Derwin. Thank you both. I'm executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley. Thanks also to financial support from Reno Sholsky David and Sammy David and to the William K. Bose Jr. Foundation. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization that investigates, among other things, the mechanisms of biology. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak. Also a big thanks to our listeners. This episode of Big Picture Science race and COVID. If you'd like to hear more of our show, you'll find past episodes in our archive at bigpicturescience.org, and you'll also find links there to the guests you heard. Tech moves fast, so keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science, everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.